1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conform yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, we want to be more like you. We don't want to trust ourselves. We don't want to look to the world as to what we should be doing with our lives, Lord. We want to look unto you and into your word. So pray, Lord, that you speak to us. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you personally, I pray that tonight would be the night that they make that personal commitment. But we need your Holy Spirit, Lord. We're living in a very, very dark and dangerous time. And so we just need you to come down and do something awesome. So we're giving you permission. We're giving you space. We're allowing you to come into our hearts and take over. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going in the book of 1 Peter. The title of the series is A Living Hope. How since our hope is placed in a person, our hope is not like the world's hope. You've heard Pastor Lloyd talk about this past weekend, if you're sitting in service, as he taught in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, on a living hope, how the world has hope, but their hope isn't the same as our hope. Because what they're basically saying is, I hope something will happen. What they're saying is, I wish that something would happen. Very different than our hope. Our hope is a promise that's guaranteed to us, that's based in a fact. And hope that's not based in truth is a lie. It's a delusion. It's wishful thinking. It's hoping that things will happen, but knowing that you don't have all the answers. Whereas our hope is we're hoping in someone, we're looking for refuge in a person. And so when we hope, it's very, very different than the world has hope. The world says, I hope it's going to be a good day tomorrow which means that you wish that it's a good day tomorrow, but you don't actually know if it will be or not. But when we say we have a hope in Jesus Christ, that's not wishing that Jesus Christ is real. It's not wishing that things turn out okay. You hear people in the world say this all the time, and like everything works together for good. How do you know that? You just hope, you wish, but you don't know. But for Christians, it's different because the promise is based in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the evidence that we have, knowing that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, we have the guarantee not only that our salvation is not a lie, but we will one day, not only are we saved now from our sins, one day we're going to inherit the promise. We're going to be able to go to heaven and be with him for all of eternity. And we know that deep down inside. But some people, they don't know this because they have not read his word. Many people, 
hope that things work out, hope there is a God, but they don't know there is a God. And what we need to understand is this book here, not only the book of 1 Peter, the entire Bible is written for our learning, for our comfort, that we would have hope in the scriptures. However, many people don't take the time to read it. Many people place their hope and wishes in different things. But if it's not true, you're wishing and hoping in vain. Now, there are these prophets, and it talks about this in verses 10 through 12, that of this salvation, that we have this glorious salvation, that we, we can totally unreservedly go forward towards this inheritance. This salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. They prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the Lord that would follow. In other words, there are these prophets that had forward-looking vision. What is a prophet? Well, a prophet is a spokesman for God, very basically. Not only does that mean a person might foretell the future, foretell what God is going to do, but they also forthtell. So it's not always about future events. It could be just about what God is saying. And that's what prophets were. They were just the voice of God to the people. And we have all kinds of people that proclaim to be prophets, a lot of people that claim to be from God. And the question is, how do you know whether or not a prophet is legit? How would you know? If a person came up to me and said, Alan, one day you're going to be the president of the United States. You're going to beat Donald Trump in a re-election. No, I'm kidding. How would I know? Would that, how would I know if that person, like, would you take that person seriously? Well, some people are willing to believe anything. You ever look at cults and what, they, what it is that they believe? Some of them believe the most ridiculous things. They'll, like, leave their families, leave their job to join a commune to follow this weirdo that believes that he's Jesus. And, you're, and like, all these people follow, they sell everything they have for this person. I'm like, why is it that people do the most ridiculous things, but they won't believe the truth? They won't believe what's actually true. It's so hard to get people to actually understand the things that are in these scriptures. There have been people all throughout history that proclaim to be prophets. There's a guy named Nostradamus. Maybe you've heard of him. And in his writings, people said, oh, he predicted that the Twin Towers were going to fall because he said there are two birds, and that symbolizes two airplanes. And it's really vague, very nonspecific, and you can interpret anything into it. It's kind of like the Upanishads. If you ever read the Upanishads, it has a whole bunch of contradictions to make it sound like it's wise. The light in the darkness was very bright and very, very fast, but very slow, and it's just really weird stuff. Now, Nostradamus was very nonspecific in his prophecies versus what you actually see in Scripture, which is very specific about what it predicts. And since God cannot lie, the prophet, whoever claims to be a prophet from God, should be 100% accurate in all that they say. Even if they get a little bit wrong, they can't be from God because God is the truth. If God could lie, he wouldn't be God. And this is what makes the Bible unique from any other book, is that it has fulfilled prophecy. Now, maybe you're not really into prophecy. I've never been a huge prophecy guy, but there have been a couple prophecies that stuck out to me as pretty crazy. Just because you don't have to stretch anything. It's just plainly in the scripture. There's a guy, King Cyrus, who was a, a king of Persia 
from 539 to 530 BC. And he was a guy who God used to allow the people of Israel to return to their homeland. And before he was even alive, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1 and 4, it says, The Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him. He's going to do this for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. So the book of Isaiah, this predates Cyrus, and this is what throws skeptics all over the place because they don't know what to do with it. They have to say that Isaiah was written after the time of Cyrus because how in the world could Isaiah know that there's going to be a king of Persia named Cyrus who's going to draw the people of Israel back to their homeland? How do you make something like that up? You can't. And if you look at some of these ancient scrolls, you'll see that these works are predating a lot of these prophecies. Alexander the Great, we all learn about him in history class. He's in Daniel chapter 8. It talks about the, kings of the, uh, the kingdoms of the Medo-Persians. After Babylon came Medo-Persia, and then other kingdoms came after that. You see Alexander the Great sweeping the nation, sweeping the world, but dying before he reached old age. And that's exactly what happened to Alexander the Great. In fact, it's so detailed about his life. Tradition goes, not the Bible, but tradition says that when Alexander the Great was conquering every nation, the Jewish people showed Alexander this prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. And he was, so pro, he was so dumbfounded by it that he spared the Jewish people. That's how tradition goes. And so, of course, the most important prophecy is about Jesus. You look at Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, how he is wounded for our transgressions. It talks about how he was hung on a cross even before crucifixion was invented in Psalm chapter 22. Now, when you look at those things, those are pretty specific. It talks about the place where he'd be born in Bethlehem. How, you know, what's the sign? He'd be born of a virgin. All these crazy things about Jesus' life, even the time period in which he'd be born. And so the reason why it has prophecy in the Bible is so that you can know and have confidence that this is the word of God. Now, here's the problem, though. These prophets wrote these things not knowing Jesus. You realize that? It says... To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, that they were ministering the things, what? They were ministering the gospel. They were preaching about Jesus, even not knowing who Jesus was. Why did they do that? It's for us. They did all those things. And this is the thing that's really trippy. They would often think, inquire, search carefully the scriptures. They would prophesy, and because they're human, they wondered, man, I wonder what Jesus is like. I wonder what these things mean that we're prophesying about. They were human instruments of God that were simply letting his voice out. And as his voice is proclaimed, it's not like they were special people, but they were just allowing God to use them. And so when they saw these prophecies, they wondered, I wonder what Jesus is like. I wonder what the Messiah is like. And here's the thing, we can know who Jesus is. We are the people that they were serving, ministering to. And how, how would, what would, it be, what would it be like to go to heaven tonight? Imagine Jesus comes back, raptures us all, we all go to heaven, and Isaiah says, so what about my letter? You read my letter? I like wrote it for you. What do you think? He says, oh, I didn't get to that. I, I got really bored, actually. You have 66 chapters. That's a lot of chapters. I mean, you could have like summarized it a little bit, cliff notes or something. 
Can you imagine how Isaiah's like so excited? Man, I've been thinking about this the whole time. And I was like hoping you get to chapter 53 and be like stoked out of your mind. Like, oh, yeah, I, I stopped at chapter 49. I'm sorry. The prophets were deeply interested in the person of Jesus, and they didn't have the New Testament. They wondered, inquired. And it talks about in the, in the latter part of the verse, verse 12, it says that these are things which angels desire to look into. That this is something that angels themselves are, are completely lashed upon. They can't think about anything else. Angels aren't up there thinking about like, oh man, I wonder what Michael's doing today. I wonder what Gabe's doing. They're just completely fixated on us. Like, why? Why does Jesus love those weirdos so much? Those filthy, sinful humans. We never strayed away. We never sinned. But Jesus loves them. And as they're completely soaked out of their mind about what God is doing in our lives, are we really taking into account what God has done for us? A lot of people today claim to be prophets when they're really false prophets. What they're really doing is basing everything on their feelings. I feel like God is moving here. I believe that the Lord wants us. I watched this Calvary Chapel pastor who was down in uh, Florida, and they were doing some, there was some like revival outreach, you know, I don't know, some, some crazy. And there was this prophetess who was having a prophecy service or something, and he was joining in, and, and I was like watching this video. It was, it was kind of strange, like Calvary Chapel guy and this woman prophetess that's just saying all these ridiculous things about healings and miracles and stuff. Not that those things don't happen, but it's just, you know, out of context. And then he grabs the mic from her, he's like, I just want to say that all of us here are just so grateful for how kindly all of you treated us. And we need to pray. More than anything, we as a church need to pray that everyone wakes up to this false teaching. And then like, it's like, <gasps> like her, her eyes just open wide. Someone actually made the gangsta meme with it and puts on the, you know, the gangster sunglasses. It was so, so funny. Look it up sometime. There's a lot of people. I wish I was that guy. That takes some guts. There's some people that just base everything on their feelings. You don't have to claim to be a prophet to do that. It's all about how God makes me feel rather than what God has said. How does the scripture make me feel? And, and people do Bible studies not by asking, what does the Bible say? They go around and say, what do you think this makes, uh, what, what, did, what do you feel about this passage? Let's all read a verse and talk about our feelings. Well, it's not about our feelings. This isn't just a work of art where we can all come up with our own interpretation. The question is, what did the author intend when he wrote this? Here's a good question. For what reason did the Son of God appear? What reason did the Son of God appear? Ask yourself that question. If you had to answer that question, what would you say? Many of you might say, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. You might say that Jesus came to forgive us of all of our sins. Well, there's actually an answer that John gives us in the book of 1 John, which might be different than what you're used to. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. You see, the prophets, the angels, they, they caught on to something, at least thus far. They caught on to the fact that we are smack dab in the middle of an amazing story. Two battles, or one battle, between two powers, the power of darkness and the power of light. 
Adam was created. He was created to be a gardener and he was given a plot of land where he could cultivate Eden and grow it and expand God's dominion. And what happened? Satan crept onto the scene in the form of a serpent and tried to deceive Adam using God's greatest gift, which was Eve. God created Eve for a good purpose, but Satan came in and deceived Eve to try to lure away Adam. And God said, of any tree of this garden you can eat, except one, the knowledge of tree, uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat that tree, you'll surely die. And so the serpent tricked him, said, oh, you won't surely die. Adam ate, he was deceived, he sinned, and now darkness entered the world. And because of that, there was a prophecy that the woman's seed and Satan's seed would always have enmity with, between them. Now we know the woman's seed is a prophecy about Jesus. It's, it's the first prophecy about Jesus, the first mention of Jesus in the entire Bible, the woman's seed, because, you know, women don't have seeds, men have seeds. So this was speaking about the virgin birth. Now, Satan's seed, what's Satan's seed? It's the power of darkness. And throughout the Bible, you see conflicts time and time and again until it culminates when Jesus comes onto the scene, the sinless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He was tempted in the wilderness. Why was he tempted in the wilderness? Most of us think, well, because he had to sympathize with our weaknesses. But that's not necessarily so. He had to destroy the works of darkness, which means that as Adam was tempted in Eden with all the animals being submissive, all the animals being gentle and, and lush, lavish fruits and all kinds of different things that he could partake of, Jesus was in a barren land in the context of the chaos that Adam created. And so now Jesus had to conquer in the context of this chaos by denying the same person that tricked Adam, the first Adam. And so Jesus, resisting temptation, as Adam was eating all the time, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, resisted the temptation, and then he died on a tree, just as Adam was tempted by a tree. And Jesus drank of the cup that the Father gave him and put to death the works of darkness. And when the woman came to the tomb, she mistook him for a gardener, because he was a gardener, and he was setting out to restore all of creation once again. It's a story. It's a story about how God is redeeming the universe and we get to take a part in it. People wonder why, why is it that there are so many people demon-possessed in Jesus' day. You realize that it wasn't common at all. It was not common for people to be demon-possessed all the time. The difference is that Jesus was on the scene. And when Jesus was on the scene, Satan tried to use all of his power to take down the kingdom of God. Why was there a legion of demons in this one person? It's not because the guy was special, it's because Jesus was special and he wanted to take out Jesus. In the meantime, when Peter said, you shouldn't go to the cross, he heard the familiar voice of Satan and said, get behind me, Satan. It's because the power of darkness is always working behind the scenes where the power of light is trying to shine. So the question is not, you know, is it God versus humankind? The question is, it's God against darkness and which side will you be on? A lot of that stuff I got from a book called Name of All Names by Alistair Begg. You can look it up later. Dr. Donald Williams is a professor of English at some university. I don't really know. But he said something really interesting. He said that all of us deep down inside, we, we watch these movies, right? The Disney movies, Hollywood movies. 
There's a hero, damsel in distress, and the power of darkness, the villain. Why is it that we are time and time again always watching the same movies with the exact same plot line? The hero comes, he tries to rescue the damsel, and then for a minute it seems like the hero is down or he's destroyed, and then he comes back and destroys the villain for once and for all. It's not just the fact that it's a very successful plot line. He thinks that it could be that because the reason why it's so successful is because each and every one of us knows that that is our story. This is the story of who we are, that Jesus is the hero, Satan is the villain, and we are the damsel in distress. And although we don't have the power to save ourselves, Jesus came to rescue us and to destroy the works of darkness. It's an exciting thing. In fact, this next letter that Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21, he says, We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from, the God, from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard the voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Okay, what's that all mean? That was a large chunk, chunk of scripture. You probably zoned out when I said that. All that to say, you can look it up later on your own time. All that to say that Peter, remember, he had an experience. He's referring to the time when he was on the Mount of Olives and they, they had the transfiguration. Peter and his buddy was with Jesus, and then he saw Jesus transfigured on that mountain. Moses and Elijah was there, and then God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hearing the voice from heaven. Nobody else got to witness that except those two. Now Peter says, when I experienced that, it gave me greater conviction for the message that I'm preaching. I know what I'm saying is not a lie because I experienced the true and living God. And I know this is not just a clever story that I made up. I'm not just trying to like promote my own thing here. When I'm writing this letter, it's not so that I can be like, oh, I'm Peter, I'm pretty cool. The reason why I'm saying this is because it's true. This is real life and we get to be a part of it. This is a story. This is something that angels themselves are tripping out over. This is something that prophets day in and day out couldn't get their minds off of. And we get to be right in the center of what God is doing in our universe. Think about this. If we get raptured, if Jesus comes back in our time, nobody else in human history will be able to experience that. We're caught up into heaven. Nobody else except us gets to experience that. Do you know how much God loves you? That we are placed in such a dark time. The Paris attacks that happened last week. These things don't just happen every day. They haven't had a, a terrorist attack that bad since World War II. I have a friend in France who is in the movie theater right next door to the Bataclan where those 130 people were killed. And I texted her asking her if she was okay. And she told me what happened is when that happened, everyone was texting her asking her if she was okay. And she didn't know what was going on. 
saw the news and had to make the decision, do I stand here and risk suffering the same fate from those other people when the terrorists went into the large crowd of people and started shooting everybody? Or do I leave and run home for a half hour in the streets? And so for a half hour, she ran home and thankfully she's okay. But these are crazy times. Imagine if that happened in our neighborhood. We would live completely differently, wouldn't we? But here's the thing. The scary thing is, it doesn't matter how many people you bomb. It doesn't matter how many people that you get rid of. It's the idea, the idea that's killing us. Because not saying that it's not okay to send our armies or troops over there to get rid of those people. But if that's all we do without combating the idea, it's just going to make them even more radical. Because they're like, oh, my friends got, my friends are martyrs now. So now I got to go take their place and, and whatever. But you realize the Bible says that we are to cast down every proud argument and every idea that's against the knowledge of God. Imagine if these terrible, evil people in ISIS, if they were met with the living God, if they experienced him, they knew the truth. They were no longer deceived by this plot line, by this narrative that is completely of Satan himself. That it's all about what you do. And if you kill enough people, and if you try to do enough things for God, he's going to save you and you're going to go to heaven. It's this narrative that's completely of the devil. And it's exactly what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. Why does God not want you to be happy? Why is God against you? It's always pitting man against God, and that's exactly what Satan does. That you have to do something, you have to be the solution, that you have to be the hero. So all this, receiving all this knowledge about ourselves should drive us to do something. And he says in verse 13, he says, therefore, in other words, because of all this, because we have such a great salvation that we can talk about, that we can live in, gird up the loins of your mind, which... Probably none of you really understand what that means, but that's okay. We'll get to it in a second. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world does that mean? It sounds really weird. I know what a loincloth is, so weird image in my head. Gird up the loins of your mind. Well, in those days, everyone was wearing robes. And when you're about to fight, you're going into battle, what you would do is you would take all the loose threads of your robe and you would tie it around your waist so that you're girding up these loins, in other words, the robes, and you're drawing them together so that you could run. Old men would do it if they, had, if they had robes on. People in the armies would do it if they were about to enter into a battle or enter into a fight so you can move quickly. And so what does he mean by gird up the loins of your mind? What he's saying is get ready to think on God's works and obey him at once, Wayne Grudem says in his commentary. In other words, prepare your minds for action. Be ready to enter into the fight. Take all these loose threads that you have throughout the day. You think about a lot of random things. Think about what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to wear today. I'm going to think about where I'm going to go to school and whatever. Take all those things and just chill out for a second. Rest your hope fully upon the grace. Think on these things, the things of heaven. Gird up the loins of your mind. Rest your hope fully upon Jesus. I don't know how you tie your shoes, but for me, I still do the bunny ears. I never really learned how to tie my shoes the right way. 
Up until I was 13, my mom tied my shoes. It's true. I don't know why. And even to this day, I never tie my shoes. I have them tied from the minute I buy them, and I just never have to tie them again, just never come loose. If they do come loose, it's just like an internal struggle because I have to bend down. I have to, it's annoying. And so if you think about it, we need to tie up the, the shoelaces of our mind. But the reason why we don't do that is what? The reason why I don't usually tie my shoes if the shoelaces are, un, are unlaced is because I keep thinking there's no way I'm going to trip and fall on my, you know, I'm not going to fall on my butt just because I have my shoelaces untied. I'm skillful enough to walk properly and not do that. So if I could just not have laces, that'd be great. In fact, I bought shoes, skater shoes, that I could just like, you know, never have to wear laces. And it's like slip-ons or something. Those are the best shoes ever. The problem here, though, is not whether or not you're going to trip. The problem is can you run with untied shoes? And it's the same thing with your mind. When we're talking about collecting all of your thoughts together and focusing in on Jesus, what we're not saying is, oh, we're afraid that you're going to trip up and you're going to stumble into sin or something. That, that could happen. It's very possible. The question is, are you ready for battle? Are you ready to intentionally think upon God's kingdom? Are you ready for what God has for you? So this involves being intentional about what you are thinking about. I remember when we were, back when I was in a band in 2000 and five no 2007 we changed our band name and we we're going to change our band name because our name was dumb sort of our first band name I remember i was in a hardcore band was in adam all die it's awesome it's scriptural first corinthians chapter 15 and adam all die but even so in christ all shall be made alive very good the problem is everyone made fun of us by calling us an animal dies like oh you're in the band an animal dies I'm like oh my gosh so we were just like whatever we're going to change the name. So as we're changing the name, we're all sitting down and we're just, we're just, it's one of the hardest things to do is think about titles or names or whatever. And so as we're sitting there, we're like, oh, you know, let's come back next week. We'll all think about it in our own time. Until one of us said, no, we're not going to leave here until we think of a name. Why? Because most likely what's going to happen is if we all leave here, we're not going to think about it ever again until next week. And then we're still not going to have anything. We're not going to leave here until we come up with the name. There's something to be said about being intentional about what you're thinking about. To find a creative flow. Have you ever been so, like, involved or invested in something, you can't help but, like, imagine yourself doing that thing? You're, like, playing soccer, playing basketball. You close your eyes and you see yourself playing basketball. If, like, you lost a game, you're trying to, like, envision yourself. How would you be able to do it better next time? I played Dance Dance Revolution a lot and, like, I would close my eyes and see the arrows going up. But you're so obsessed and so focused on what it is that you want to do that you can't stop thinking about it. Whenever I'm writing music and I find my creative flow, I can't stop. I can't focus on anything else. People are talking to me. I can't even hear them because I need to finish out that line of the song or I need to finish out whatever I'm writing. It's the same thing with preaching. If I'm in the middle of the thought, I can't be disturbed. I need to finish out what I'm thinking about. And we need to be that way when we're focused about Jesus in other words, we're deciding what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the Word of God. And whether it's the morning, evening, throughout the day, you're constantly bringing yourself back to focusing on the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 6 says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. As I was rock climbing this past week in Texas, El Paso, great food, had this one burger, it was amazing. It was like, it was called a Rise and Shine burger, and it's like, I'm, I'm visualizing it right now. It's like an egg, and they have cranberry ketchup, which is, sounds really interesting, it's amazing. They have bacon, a hash brown, and oh, it was so good. And while I was in Texas, the scary thing is, that's the example right there. I just got distracted. The scary thing is you can go an entire week not thinking about God if you're not intentional about it. It's like, oh, my gosh. Like, I'm waking up. And like, if I don't set my mind that I'm going to think about this, I'm surrounded by non-Christians. Right? They're not going to challenge me to think about God. Like, oh, what you read in your devotions this morning? No one's going to ask me that. I actually have to sit down and ask myself the question, what is God saying to me? And if I don't do that, if you don't do that on a daily basis, we can find ourselves in a lot of trouble. Isn't that right, Jared? So when it comes to thinking about the spirit in every situation to redirect your mind to focus on God, maybe you're so troubled because you have a lot of anxiety in your life. Have you ever been so tense that you, you, you're literally all of your muscles, your stomach, your neck, everything is just tight and tense. And it's not until you realize, wow, I'm really tense, that you're able to loosen it and take a deep breath. Take a deep breath, you let it out, and you realize just how tense you were. Sometimes that's how we have to go about our Christian life. It's just you have all this tensity, all this worry, all this anxiety, and you simply have to just praise the Lord and thank Him for what He's done. And when you do that, all the anxiety kind of fades away. It's like, oh, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't know what I'm going to do about this. And you're just so worried. But he said, but Lord, thank you because today's a nice day out. Lord, thank you that I have a family. Thank you that I have food. Thank you, Lord, that you have called me. to. Even though I don't understand it now, I know that you have purpose for my life. And when you do that, everything begins to be reoriented. Even in prosperity, some of us, might be so stuck in prosperity that it causes us to complain about everything. We're so fixated on the situation in front of us that we don't think about eternity. Another thing that it causes us to do is to be sober. It says, be sober in verse 13, and rest your hope fully upon the grace as it be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does it say sober? Obviously, being sober is the opposite of being drunk. And I think the reason why he says this is because a lot of us can be mentally intoxicated. Our thoughts just lead themselves. And you can be so fixated on something that's so not of God that you have to bring yourself back in focusing on the Lord. You could actually be the strongest fighter in the world. But if you are... in you're going into a fight drunk, all of your strength will be forfeited. And likewise, it's possible to enter into mental intoxication. You're just constantly thinking about yourself, constantly in self-loathing. Or you're like David when he was on the rooftop and he saw Bathsheba and he couldn't think about going into battle. That was what he was supposed to do. He's supposed to enter into a fight. He stayed behind and his own thoughts entrapped him. How many Christians are wasting their potential because they're constantly intoxicated in their minds? And it's not just to be sober, but to actually do something with your mind. 
She says, rest your hope fully upon the grace as to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we know what we're not supposed to do, but we need to know what we're actively supposed to be doing. To focus on the word. To constantly go back to the Bible and ask ourselves, how can I be more excited about Jesus every single day? Not did I check the box of reading my devotions. Not did I send a text message of a verse or whatever. But our goal of every Bible study is to do what Jesus did on the walk of Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 32, it says that the two people that are on the road of Emmaus said to, to one another, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Our goal here, ladies and gentlemen, is that every single time we pick up this book, that our hearts would burn inside of us. I don't know if this is tonight. I don't know if it's another time. Have you ever had a time where a preacher's talking and he's speaking to you? And you know it's exactly for you? I've been in countless situations like that where it's like, I know that he's preaching to other people, but he's speaking to my heart. And I know that I'm supposed to be different after this message. And that is exactly how we should be every single time we open up the word because we're meeting with Jesus himself. So it's not just receiving the word. It's not just thinking about the word. But lastly and finally, we need to obey the word. So verse 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, not conform yourselves to the form of lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So right here, we have a transitional verse that will frame the next portion of the book. And that is this. Revelation, or knowledge of God, will lead us to make an action. To place us in action. Either to run from God or run to God. To draw near to him or to hide from him. Because, listen, God is light. And because he is light, when he enters a dark room, the darkness is exposed. You can't hide the light unless you actually place it under something that it's not able to enter into. But when Jesus comes in into your life, his light is going to shine. He can't be any less shiny. So with that, how are you going to allow God to shine in your life? Are you going to hide from him or are you going to push him out? John chapter 3 verse 19 says, This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to light lest his deeds should be exposed. The reason why people hate light is because they're doing things in darkness and they don't want people to find out. When you had... Adam and Eve, and they had sinned, and they ate of the tree. What happened? They hid from God when God tried to shine light into the life. Cain, he tried to hide from God. When God asked, where is your brother Abel? There's, you have a choice whether to run to God or to run from God. And he says as obedient children. Now, one of the ways to tell whether or not you're God's child is, how do you react to God's light? Do you run or do you hide? Two notable things about children we should point out. Number one, children simply listen to their parents. They're really gullible, aren't they? You can tell kids, like I told one of the staff members here, he has a five-year-old kid. I told him if he drinks out of the water, 
But if he drinks out of the water fountain, he'll speak Spanish. And so he drank the water. He's like, I'm not speaking Spanish. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what you're saying right now. Comprende. No. And just don't even speak Spanish. And he's like freaking out. Ah! And he like ran away and tried to talk to somebody else. Children are really gullible. <laughs> don't try this at home. <laughs> but he's saying that we should be the same way as children, obedient children. Why is that? In other words, although there's a chance of, of being lied to, because we know God doesn't lie, we can just simply take his word and obey it. You don't have to question whether God, or not, God is going to come through or not. You don't have to ask yourself, is God lying to me? You can know God's telling you the truth. So every single thing he says, you can believe it. If he says, fear not, you can believe it. If he says, I will be with you, you can believe it. If he says, take a step of faith, you can believe it. How many of us are not taking a step of faith because we still don't believe what he says? We're not talking to our friends that aren't saved. We're too, too, too scared or too afraid to walk into his calling, forgetting that God doesn't lie. So the only question you have to ask is, am I hearing God's voice or am I hearing the voice of others? Here's another thing to think about. How did Adam and Eve know that the tree was bad? Did it smell bad? Did it look ugly? Did it have thorns all over it? No, the only way they knew that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was bad is because God said so. One of the theme, themes of the Bible, this is something Alistair Begg was pointing out, one of the themes of the Bible is that we're not to look with our eyes, we're to look with our ears. And Jesus asks us to obey his word despite what we see. Because you're going to look at the things of this world and it's going to be very tempting. Listen, if you're waiting for the day as a guy, you've been looking at pornography, you're waiting for the day that women are not attracted to you, guess what? Not going to happen. If you've been waiting for the day that you're no longer tempted by the things that you're constantly tempted by, it's not going to happen. What you need to say is, even though this looks good, I'm not going to depend on what I see. I walk by faith and not by sight. And I'm going to depend on God's word and believe that even though this situation looks appetizing, I'm not going to walk in it. Who are you when you're all by yourself? When nobody else is around, it's just you and that guy, and he's about to make his move. What are you going to do? When your friends are offering you a drink, or offering you, here's a weird, no, I shouldn't say this. I'll tell you anyway. I walked out of my hotel room in El Paso. I walked out of my hotel room. I'm on the phone. I'm walking down, and a guy's smoking weed, and he offers me weed while I'm on the phone. I'm like, who are you? What a weirdo. Who does that? It's just like the audacity. Number one, that was rude. I'm on the phone. Number two, what's wrong with you? What are you going to do when you're all alone? When nobody else sees? Because that reveals who you really are. And in that moment, are you going to follow what looks good or are you going to follow the voice of God, which sounds good? That is really, really important that we all get that before we close tonight. That we look with our ears and not with our eyes. Second thing about children is that they are natural imitators. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as dear children. 
children naturally want to be just like their parents. My dad, for many years, wore a fanny pack. As a child, guess what I wore? A fanny pack. <laughs> Listen, they're hip now. They're coming back in style. Your parents will, you know, do like a sports team, and you'll like the same sports team. Or as you're growing up as a child, you naturally want to be just like your parents. My dad was into karate. I wanted to be in karate. In the same way, we are to naturally imitate our heavenly father and be like him. Be holy. Why? For he is holy. The reason why we are not in entertaining these ideas of the world isn't just because isn't, isn't, it's not because God doesn't like us. It's not because those things aren't cool. It's because God wants us to be like him. Enter into a higher calling. It says, not conform yourselves to the formulas as in your ignorance. There was a time and place, if you're a Christian here tonight, there's a time when you were ignorant. You didn't know that these things were bad. You didn't know that you were supposed to say those words. You didn't know you were supposed to do those things. So leave those things in the past. Don't bring them with your, into your future. Now, this word conformed is only used here and in Romans 12. And its definition is to pattern one's actions or life after another. So when he says don't be conformed, he's not just saying just be unlike the world. He says, are you like Christ? Everyone look up here. It's not enough to be different than the world. The question is, do you conform to Christ? Are you like him? Some of us in our minds, we have this idea that we're just supposed to be different than the world, so I'm going to do different weird things. That's not what God is saying. He's saying, be like me, follow me. A lot of us, I think, growing up have this Hollywood mentality where we bind to the narratives, these stories that are completely non-biblical, where people just do illogical things, like taking risks is cool, being illogical, doing the opposite of what your friends say, that's awesome. And so, like, you know, I don't know. Beauty and the Beast. I'm going to marry the Beast because, you know, he has some inner goodness or something. So I'm going to marry him even though all my friends are like, what are you doing? This weird Cinderella, this, you know, the prince wants to marry this girl that's very poor and it's very countercultural. And all of us deep down inside are like, I want to be that. I want to be the hero. The problem is when we're drawn to those stories, we often want to be the hero that marries the Beast. We want to be the prince that marries Cinderella have the goodness of our own hearts, but we forget that that's Jesus. We are the beast, and God chases after us. We are the poor, and God rescues us. The story is reversed, and when we try to be the illogical people, we often just do dumb things, right? So all that you have, wouldn't it be crazy if you just took a risk and followed God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you just sold everything you had, left your family, and went to Africa? Like some of us actually desire to do that. Like, oh yeah, that'd be really cool. Or the unbeliever that just potentially might be the most evangelistic believer in the world. If only they came to Christ. Now, you could save them. And you're like, yes, I need to date them, marry them, and then they're going to get saved and change the world. Here I go. Listen, it happens to me too. Don't do that. You have to fight against that narrative. Think about this. God never calls people in the Bible to take dumb, illogical risks. He says to obey his word. And until then, we're not supposed to do those things. Imagine if Noah was just like, you know what? I'm going to do something completely countercultural and make an airplane. 
That'd just be weird and totally impractical because when he runs out of fuel, he's going to just sink. In fact, Noah didn't even think about making a boat until God called him to make a boat. Do you realize that? Noah's not thinking about, I'm going to, you'll be great about now, just making a boat. He didn't think about that. But God called him to do it. And when he called him to do something, it was countercultural because it conformed to God and not to the world. So in fact, when we take risks without God's direction, that often exposes that we're simply trying to find another avenue to get God to give us what he wants. You ever find that to be true? When you take risks and you're trying to be real logical and you're trying to do things on your own timeline, what you're really trying to do is to see if you can manipulate God to give you what you really want. Make things happen now on your terms. Like, oh, God hasn't given me an answer as to what I'm supposed to do with my life, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to choose something and see what happens. Or, uh, you know what, I just, things aren't working out at this school. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the school and go somewhere else. These friends, like, totally just make me mad and stuff, so I'm just going to, like, leave them and do whatever I want to do because it seems like maybe I just have to take a step of faith. And, like, that's what we say. Like, it's a step of faith. But that's what we need to watch out for because we still have remaining desires from our ignorant days. When he warns them, don't be conformed as in your ignorance, what he's saying is, you're naturally going to feel that way. You're naturally going to still have hints of the old man. But you can't let your character be shaped by your past. Instead, be holy as he is holy. The meaning of holy, really quickly, is to live radically different from everyone else because God is completely unlike anyone else. Holy just means set apart, different. And that's what God is. And in all of our conduct, every day, every moment, every thought, every action, we're being holy as he is holy. And the rest of this book is going to talk about the ways to do that, to be more like God. And the, the more that you draw near to God, he draws near to you, and you can receive more of his blessings, not just in the next life, but here and now. So, you were given three different things to put into action today. Receive the word, think about the word, and obey the word. If you just receive and think, you don't obey, are you really knowing what God is calling you to do? You can't think without receiving. You can't obey without thinking. You need all those three things. And so, I just want to give you an invitation tonight. Do you, have you placed your trust in Jesus? Are you trusting in yourself? That God loves you, that he wants you to be a part of this story. And if you enter in and you choose to accept that mission, your life will never be the same. Let's pray. Lord,